This week on Indivisible Westchester, the podcast, we chat with former Obama administration official Chris Liu about Biden getting out the vote and why our democracy is more a threat than ever. Hi, I'm Shannon Powell. I'm joined today by Donnie Kahn of Indivisible Westchester, and we're so thrilled to have Chris Liu here. Chris is a former Obama administration official. Chris, thank you so much. We have a lot to talk about. We have 61 days before the election. Can you believe it? Yeah, boy, this is going to go really fast, especially with early voting starting. Uh, you know, ballots are going to start getting mailed out to people. And so what I always tell people is, look, you know, come up with your voting plan. If there's mail-in voting, figure out if you want to do that. If you have early in-person voting, think about that as well. Um, you know, we need to take everything into consideration. Obviously, the the, the pandemic and people need to be safe, but you need to make sure your vote gets counted. So if you have a way to vote early, go ahead and vote early. Let's talk a little bit about Biden. Now, just yesterday, the DHS was saying, well, we got reports that DHS actually had not passed along a report that the Russians, again, let's all not be shocked, are trying to interfere in the election and trying to spread misinformation about Biden's mental health. What do you know about Biden? You worked for the Obama administration. You know him well. Give us your take. You know, I've been fortunate to have known Joe Biden and work with him, um, you know, really for the entire Obama administration. In the first term, uh, I managed President Obama's cabinet. And so I worked very closely with the vice president around the implementation of the Recovery Act. This was the big stimulus measure that we passed in February of 2009 to get the economy back up and running during the Great Recession. And I saw the way that Joe Biden, you know, worked the phones, talking to governors and mayors to figure out what did they need in order to get jobs going back to their local regions. And then I saw him, you know, on the phone or, or in person, twisting arms with members of the cabinet who were getting money out the door, really pushing them um, to get the money so we could fund projects, you know, and, and, and get people back to work. And really because of the vice president's work, it is one of the reasons why we averted uh, the next Great Depression. I also saw the vice president in action uh, during the H1N1 crisis. This was swine flu in 2009, as well as Ebola in 2014. You know, and those were pandemics. And the reason we didn't have 180,000 people die during those pandemics and didn't have schools closed and sports leagues closed is because we had an organized response that was based on experience and leadership and science and facts. And so professionally, I could not um, be more happy to have Joe Biden as the Democratic nominee. But I would also just say personally, he is one of the most thoroughly decent people I have ever met. Uh, and decency, you would think, is, you know, a prerequisite. Uh, but when you've been in politics as long as I have, you meet a lot of people who are accomplished, uh, but may not be good people. Uh, Joe Biden is a good person through and through. He's empathetic. He's kind. He's generous. He is the one who is always um, reaching out to people um, who are down, who are, who have, you know, had uh, something happen to them. Uh, he's the one. He, he's a fantastic motivator of staff. Um, he 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 throws himself completely into the work that he does. And what's important is that it's not guided by what's in his best interest uh, or what is um, politically the right thing to do, but is what the right thing to do is 
for Americans and really what the right thing to do for American workers and the American middle class and those people who haven't gotten a fair shake in life. And that really just comes back to his upbringing in Scranton, Pennsylvania and you know the lessons that his parents taught him. I mean, he is one of the most um, honorable people I have ever met and it's hard to come up with a uh, more clear contrast between uh, anyone and Donald Trump. The empathy, I have really missed seeing a sense of empathy from our leader, right? From leaders. And so that is the one thing that really came across during the, uh, the convention, the Democratic convention was just, wow, we have somebody who actually cares about others and how important that is. You know, every one of us who worked in the West Wing with the vice president have a story about when he pulled us aside when we were, he saw that we were having a difficult period of time or there was a family crisis that he had heard about in our lives uh, and really reached out um, and, 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 and comforted us, um, often handing us his cell phone number, uh, often, you know, writing us notes. And, and, and that just speaks volumes because these are not moments that he did for press. Um, he did them because they were the right thing to do. And, you know, I was watching as we take this uh, today, um, the vice president is in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and I was watching a little bit of his town hall, uh, his listening session. And what's remarkable is having a presidential candidate sitting and listening to people talk and taking notes. He's not talking himself. He did make remarks at the end, but he really wanted to hear from other people. And boy, it would be so great to have a listener back in the White House again. You know, when you compare the person that you know in Joe Biden, you were part of the Obama-Biden transition team. Uh, actually, you led it uh, in 2008. And when you see the person and the way you talk about him and the stories that we hear about him, and then you think of, and Shannon led off with this ABC News report that came out yesterday that the Department of Homeland Security uh, blocked the intelligence report from coming out that Russia was trying to question uh, Joe Biden's uh, mental stability. And then not only that's bad enough, but Trump himself is taking and sort of running with the Russian talking points. Haven't been inside the White House. How do you even process that, that you have a sitting president of the United States essentially mimicking and parroting Russian talking points to attack, by all accounts, a sincerely decent human being? Yeah, you know, I mean, let's, let's do the Trump side first. I mean, you know, this is a president from day one who has denigrated our U.S. intelligence agencies, uh, who went uh, to Helsinki uh, in, in July of 2018 and stood there and sided with Vladimir Putin over U.S. intelligence agencies about election interference, uh, and who has, you know, basically put his political cronies in charge of these agencies and stifled information about what the real election threats are and is now completely mudding the water about voting. Um, and, and so that is troubling. Um, what I am heartened by is that there are still professionals within these agencies that are pushing to get that information out. And I think it's important for voters um, to really be educated consumers of information. Um, again, whether you're on the left or right, and I suspect we're talking to mostly people on the left right now, uh, look, don't just blindly follow whatever you read on social media. Certainly, it, just because somebody forwards you something or shares something on Facebook, don't take it with, uh, I mean, do take it with a grain of salt and investigate it yourself. Um, and I think this is the challenge we're living in right now is that these social media companies are trying to police misinformation and they're just so far behind 
where everyone else is. I mean, we've just seen over the weekend a series of manipulated videos that the Trump campaign and their allies are pushing out. And, you know, Facebook, Twitter will label them manipulated, you know, half a day later after they've already been spread. So look, that is certainly distressing um, because it should be the case that regardless of what party you are a member of, you want our elections to be fair, but clearly that is not the approach this president is taking. I will tell you with regard to Joe Biden, um, you know, I laugh when I see, uh, hear these, um, you know, this line that the Trump people are pushing about uh, his mental fitness. I mean, Joe Biden is one of the smartest, sharpest people I have ever met. He knows, you know, not only, you know, names of governors and mayors and foreign leaders, he knows policy issues inside and out. He knows the history of how we came to these policy recommendations. Uh, and I think ironically, all that is happening right now is that Trump is so much lowering the expectation bar for Biden, you know, that I think it's going to be sort of problematic when, when Biden does stand up in there in, in these public debates and shows that, look, he, he is incredibly well equipped with information. And I think all of this is ironic, given the fact that we've seen a president who every single time that he opens his mouth says something that is, I mean, at best, it's cringeworthy. Uh, and, and at other times, it's completely dangerous. Right. You know, speaking of speaking of landing a home run when it comes to Biden, he did such a great job. He did a great job today in you know, in Wisconsin, but he also did a great job at the Democratic convention. He really landed that speech. You talk about low expectations, but also talking about expectations when you look at the platform. You were a delegate, correct, Chris? I am, yeah. Um, so I was a delegate as well. So, you know, we had to vote on what the platform was, yeah. right? So the Democratic platform was very detailed. <laughs> um, the Republicans then came out with basically a non-platform. It is, I am going to be blindly loyal to Trump. How shocked are you by that? I mean, that's just such a change from, from the past. Yeah, I mean, what it shows is that, again, the, the Democratic Party is the party of ideas. And again, whether it's, you know, uh, dealing with, uh, the pandemic, whether it's uh, build back better, whether it is healthcare, whatever it is, we have an idea, we have a plan to, to quote Elizabeth Warren, uh, for how to, to not only get our country back, but to improve it. And what you really see is the contrast with the Republican Party. I mean, this has become a cult of personality. This is all about Donald Trump. And I always say to my Republican friends, look, you know, your party used to stand for lots of things, including things like fair trade, including humane immigration policies, uh, including, you know, um, fiscal responsibility, all these things that you have just thrown out the window uh, during a time of Trump. And so, yeah, again, uh, the contrast could not be more clear uh, as when you look at those two party platforms. You know, it was almost comical. It was the uh, second term agenda that Trump put out uh, after the after the convention. And, uh, you know, when you think of it, as you mentioned, the detailed Democratic platform, which is 92 pages long and essentially touches every important issue in our country right now. And then you have a one page document that a five year old could have written with a crayon that, uh, you know, teach American exceptionalism is one of them or, you know, get back to normal in 2021, which is like, I, 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 don't, I don't even understand how that is the presidential uh, agenda moving forward. But, you know, party platforms are one thing, but how important is it to have a clear vision uh, of for a country that's based in values for a president to have? I mean, we talked about going to Kenosha. We saw 
uh, what 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 the GOP is doing, and it, they seem to have embraced this. Uh, you know, most presidential candidates would be embarrassed uh, of this much division, this much violence in our streets, and they seem to have embraced that as a re-election strategy. I mean, what do you make of that as someone who 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 has been in these circles? And that's one of the things that I think I find so troubling about the way that Donald Trump has governed this country. And President Obama said it well in his Democratic Convention address when he said, look, I didn't expect uh, my successor to necessarily follow my policies, but I did expect him to, to, to try to, to, to rise up and occupy the office, to try to govern on behalf of all people in this country, not just those who... Uh, supported him. And, and again, whether you are a Democrat or Republican, that is the way that presidents uh, have traditionally guided, they uh, governed, they've wanted to be the president of all of the United States of America. Uh, and now we have this constant division that Trump continues to push between the left and the right, red states, blue states, democratic cities, rural areas, uh, white versus black. Uh, he thrives on division. And, and I think, Don, you said, well, Policies are important, but what are the values that you stand for? Um, you know, I want to be, uh, I want a president who believes in bringing people together, uh, of the importance of diversity, inclusion, of trying to lift everyone up instead of just the people at the top. Um, and that's, you know, the president I served under, that's what he did, Barack Obama, and that's what his vice president, Joe Biden, stands for as well. Um, and, and I think that's the stark difference in this country. Um, and you've seen this play out over, as you point out, over the last couple of days where, you know, you've got President Trump, who is trying to stoke the flames in Kenosha, uh, who refuses to call out a 17-year-old supporter who crossed state lines with an AR-15 to shoot at people. Uh, and then the contrast is you've got Vice President Biden, uh, who has said, look, I'm all for peaceful protesting, but there is no place for looting. There is no place for violence, no matter who is perpetrating the violence. And I think that's a very, as much as all the policy differences, and we can talk about healthcare, education, or whatever, but just that simple differentiation of values, I think, is what is on the ballot in November. Right. What about the media? I mean, as a former member of the media, I'm so distressed by the way the media has cover Trump. Yeah, I mean, look, this is a problem. I mean, you know, right? Yeah, I mean, when is Trump uh, just being a distraction, an intentional distraction? And when is he actually saying something that's dangerous? Mm -hmm. So I think about a couple of weeks ago where Trump, you know, tweeted out that, you know, we might have to delay the election. I mean, that was a startling thing mm -hmm. that I think we could not ignore. The idea that, you know, he might try to use whatever powers he thinks he has, which he doesn't. It's not his decision as to when the election is held. Um, and I think it needs to be called out. Um, or when he, you know, somehow uh, leaves the door open that Kamala Harris, you know, is not uh, qualified, uh, is not, uh, you know, constitutionally qualified to be president. I think we need to have to call him out. But it is hard, though, because there's this, this torrent of things that he throws out every single day. And it's like a game of whack-a-mole and you don't want any of these things to sort of stick in the consciousness of people. But the problem is when you go down that rabbit hole, it drowns out all of the other conversation. It drowns out whatever positive coverage that Joe Biden can get, 
as well as the real policy dis uh, the, the really policy disputes that distinguish the two candidates. Right. I no. mean, he really thrived by creating chaos. I mean, that's it. That's his MO. And that does make it hard for for the, you know, Washington press corps to cover him. But at the same time, the framing of some of these things, you can't frame, you, you need to frame him in a way that really calls out, not gives more credence to his lies. So sometimes, you know, there's this saying, you repeat lies enough times that they become the truth, right? Um, and so I think that just by repeating what he says and saying it's not true is not working. And then it's also like apples and oranges. So there's some reports where, you know, it's that, that he'll say something and if you don't put it within the right context, then it gives it too much validity when it shouldn't be because as you said, all he is is trying to create chaos and, um, you know, it, it's, it's really not based in any kind of policy or, you know, he's just doing it for his own good. No, and I think it is incumbent upon the media. I mean, any, any media outlet that covers some of the crazy allegations that Trump makes and then pivots and says, well, you know, in contrast, Democrats have done some other bad thing. This kind of both sidesism. I think it's a problem. Right. I think what happens is the American people tune it out and say, well, these are just, this is the normal bickering that the two parties do without recognizing that one of them is qualitatively far worse than anything else on the other side. Um, you know, like, look, I mean, you've got to, look, we can have a whole, you know, debate about COVID-19 um, and who's at fault here and what the uh, right procedures are for reopening our economy, re reopening schools. But when you've got a president who tweets out or retweets this weekend, a conspiracy theory that only 6% of COVID cases are actual, or COVID deaths or real deaths, uh, that's a problem. Um, and, 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 a media, and, and, and the media has to cover that as this is a blatant lie. Um, otherwise, if you devolve into the kind of the both sides, it just confuses the American people. Right, exactly. 100%, I mean, I think some of it is, uh, Chris, that you know, you're, you're a son of immigrants and I'm an immigrant, I think our country to some degree right now is not used to seeing a president behave the way that Trump is behaving so far out that it's not, it doesn't even compute. It takes, uh, you know, I think reporters are used to asking questions in a press conference or at the white house and expecting a presidential answer. And what they get back is so wacky. Uh, you know, I, I had a reporter's quote that always stuck with me. I wish I could remember the reporter's name was that trying to cover him and covering him in real time it almost makes you feel like you're going crazy because it's hard to keep up with the madness that he's spewing at you. Uh, but to that degree, since you're in, you're in DC and, and I know you, uh, you have a lot of uh, friends on the other side of the aisle, what do you make of the, you know, the, the, well, you can expect, we, can, we knew who Donald Trump was before he took office. I mean, that's why some of us were uh, so heartbroken uh, on that fateful day, but what do you make of the Republicans who just refuse to hold him accountable? What do you make of the Lindsey Grahams and the Ted Cruz who are like personally and viciously attacked and yet they are just find themselves graveling at his feet at everything that he does. And, and there's legions of, the, uh, of people like that on the right. I mean, look, it's distressing. And, you know, you can, you know, w when you hear the privately say expressing their concerns about Trump, that's one thing, but unless you're willing to publicly say it, um, it, it's meaningless. And I think it's notable 
when you have literally hundreds of former Republican uh, senior officials who have served in the Bush administration or people that are members of Congress or you know diplomats all coming out and supporting Biden, I think that tells you a lot about where quote unquote mainstream Republicans to the extent there are any are right now. But it is distressing because you know our constitutional system really depends on um, you know three co-equal branches of government protecting their own jurisdiction uh, and sort of being in perpetual conflict with each other. But when you've got in particular in a Republican Senate, not exercising their oversight powers, not you know, taking seriously checks and balances, you've got you know, people like Susan Collins who will you know, um, acquit the president on impeachment and somehow then claim that he's learned a lesson from that. I mean, it's stunning. And, and I think there's going to be a reckoning once we get past this moment of Trump, which I believe in my heart of hearts sincerely will be on November 3rd, where people finally say, what, what was wrong with your party? Now, look, we're gonna hear a lot of, you know, oh yeah, I really did stand up behind the scenes and I, you know, and I pushed, you know, whatever. Look, in this moment right now where our democracy is at stake, unless you're willing to stand up to this, in my mind, you've abetted all of the bad consequences and all of the bad behavior. No, I agree. Can we talk about the economy quickly? You were the deputy um, labor secretary under Obama. I am still mystified that Trump gets good, he gets a lot of uh, good press, not so much good press, but even he gets positive um, approval ratings on its handling of the economy. This is flabbergast me. I mean, I almost came and spit out the question because it just <laughs> irritates me so much. It's like, how can this be? How can we, yes, the stock market is doing great, but we have record unemployment. I mean, look at what the, what COVID has done to our country from an economic standpoint. And people are still like, oh yeah, he's done a great job with the economy. How, how can this, how can this be? And what can Democrats do to try and you know, reset the narrative or, you know, actually make the case and make people understand that they are better for the economy. Yeah. And so let, let, let's level set here. I mean, first of all, the stock market is not the economy. Uh, and so it doesn't matter where the stock market is. Um, that's not where average people's lives are. Most people in this country, the overwhelming majority of people have no, have no equity interest in the stock market uh, whatsoever. Uh, we know that during the time of Trump, income inequality has widened. The number of people without health insurance has increased after decreasing during the Obama administration. Uh, more people are going to food banks and that was even before COVID. And obviously when you add now COVID, you've got double digit unemployment. You've got uh, 29 million people as of today collecting unemployment benefits. Uh, and you've got millions of people facing eviction. You know, look, the economic recovery that Donald Trump takes credit for was started under President Obama in 2010 because of a lot of important work that was done by Joe Biden. Uh, Donald Trump has basically rode on that, um, that economic success. Uh, he's juiced the economy through a uh, trillion and a half dollars of tax cuts, by and large, that went to corporations uh, and, and, and wealthy Americans. Um, and so this whole thing, like so many of Donald Trump's businesses, is one giant house of cards. And we've seen what happens. This thing has collapsed under the weight of this pandemic. And you know he, what he wants people to believe is that we're gonna get this V-shaped recovery. 
economic recovery. And the truth is we never get that V-shaped economic recovery as long as you have 40,000 COVID cases a day, 1,000 people dying every day. And so, um, you know, look, I, I, a lot of this is perception in terms of the polling numbers on his handling of the economy, but you're starting to see them even out a little bit uh, with I think Biden only now a couple points back in terms of the handling of the economy. Um, and I think most people understand this country they are not better off under Donald Trump. In some way, it almost feels, because uh, you touched on this, Chris, is that his policies were already taking us down the wrong path before COVID hit. I mean, the, the trade wars and the, the tariffs and the, the bailouts to farmers and the tax cuts, it seemed like we were going down the wrong way to begin with. I think COVID has just sped up uh, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the darkness of the moment, essentially. Yeah, I mean, the statistic I used to come back to, and this was before COVID, was that 40% of Americans could not come up with $400 uh, in an emergency. You know, this was after a trillion and a half dollars of tax cuts, after the stock market had record highs. 40% of people were essentially living paycheck to paycheck. And I think what COVID has exposed is all of the economic inequalities in our country that, you know, we have a federal minimum wage at 7.25 an hour that has not gone up now in 11 years, uh, that we have uh, the, the amount of home ownership in this country going down. We had a record amount of consumer debt, so auto debt, uh, mortgages, uh, student loan debt. The stu like, you know, if you talk about where, if you want to talk about people who are hurting, there are people in their 20s who are uh, sitting on massive amounts of student loan debt and who are now sitting through a recession that is not allowing them to work gainfully. So um, there were so many inequalities that were already happening, but it was easy for Trump to continue to pointing at his one benchmark, which was the stock market. And I think what we have seen now, um, when you have a, a pandemic, uh, the impact of it has fallen disproportionately on low-income workers, on people of color, women. Um, and I think that's part of one of the reasons why this whole, you know, mirage of Trump's economic record is starting to dissipate now. Right, suburban women understand that and hopefully will come out in force for Biden. Uh, here's a question for you. I, from the minute Trump was elected, felt that he was a very urgent threat to democracy. And it's interesting. I mean, I think some people thought I was a little crazy, but because that's literally what I thought and what I said to people. That's why I went to Washington in March. I'm surprised by how many people I know personally who are now saying the same thing. It's almost like I feel like that collective thought is, is, is kind of sinking in, right? And so how big of a threat to democracy do you think Trump is? Again, I'm, I'm, I'm shocked by the number of just average people who are like, wow, I'm worried about the future of our country and if our democracy is going to survive. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, no, I 100% I agree with you, Shannon. I mean, I think, you know, we have these guardrails of democracy that have been badly damaged during the last three and a half years. I don't think they survive another four years under Trump. Um, and, and, you know, it's so many things. Think about the way that he's launched this relentless attack on the media, calling them the enemy of the state. He's gone after the career civil servants in the federal government, calling them deep state the way that he has given license to people to express their racism and their prejudices out loud. Look, there's always racism in this country. We're not gonna get rid of that. 
But when you've got a president who is using that kind of hateful, divisive rhetoric, it gives license to everyone else to do the exact same thing. Um, the way that he has really kind of branded people that don't agree with him uh, as treasonous, um, the way that he has um, kind of launched this attack on, you know, I mean, he's, he's now on this whole crusade about low-income people invading, uh, you know, suburban areas, which is, we can have that conversation, which is not true. Um, he, it, it's, it's, it's the policies are one thing. And look, he's clearly governing from a um, hard right perspective. Um, but it's the rhetoric, it's the, it's, it's, the, it's the erosion of the norms. It's the way that he has politicized a justice department mm -hmm. to do favors for his friends and to go after his enemies. And again, no matter what you think about George W. Bush or the first Bush, Ronald Reagan, these are not things that they did. Um, now, the, we have norms in place. The fact that Donald Trump is constantly on Twitter threatening investigations of companies, threatening boycotts of companies. I mean, so for anyone who tells me he is pro-business, I say to you, like, look, if you get on the wrong side of Donald Trump, he's going he's gonna to point his Twitter uh, feed right at you. Um, that is no environment uh, for a business uh, executive to try to operate. One of the things, uh, Chris, you mentioned, um, you know, our, our democracy being at stake, and one of the bedrocks, obviously, is voting. And uh, one of the things, uh, one of the many things that just uh, makes you wonder what, what is even going on is, is just in the last few days, Trump has been trying to undermine the voting process. Yesterday, he told his, his supporters to do the mail-in voting and vote in person because if their system is so good, as if, you know, who's president right now? Um, but what we all understand the voting is the key, right? Everybody has to get out and vote and we have to get people we know to get out and vote. And I'm certainly going to be out there and all, everybody in Invisible Westchester and all of our sister groups in, in Westchester will be out there doing that. How, what are we doing? Uh, and do you know of what we're doing? I know uh, uh, Eric Holder has an organization, Stacey Abram has an organization. I heard Tom Perez the other day saying that the Democratic Party is working with those organizations to ensure that our votes are counted uh, and that they matter. Uh, do you know uh, what some of the safeguards are in place right now to ensure that uh, every vote is counted and that uh, if we make it to the polling station or if we get a mail-in uh, ballot in, that, that it will be counted? Yeah, I mean, uh, look, I mean, first of all, we need to recognize that voting in this country happens at the local level. So it's operated by 50 uh, state election officials. Some are good, some are not that good. Um, and, you know, we don't spend enough time, frankly, on our election infrastructure uh, and on having clear rules. And you end up with these, you know, goofy situations like we all remember in 2000 in Florida. Um, so recognize that we have not come up with clear, consistent rules across the board in all 50 states. That's a problem. Recognizing that we're relying on infrastructure and have not put enough money uh, into um, protecting it from foreign interference is a problem. Um, and because you have 50 state laws, um, you basically have this, you know, essentially 50 states of litigation that are happening right now. On the Democratic side, some of the groups you just mentioned are actively in court pushing back against Republican efforts to try to restrict um, voting um, and trying to push for greater access, you know, more early voting, more early voting locations, um, trying to at least push that, hey, if you get your ballot uh, postmarked by N November 3rd, election day, 
it can be counted even if it doesn't show up, uh, you know, until a couple of days later. And so look, all these are all, I should say, I don't want people to get discouraged and say, well, you know, this thing is rigged and it doesn't matter. It absolutely does matter. And we have seen this play out. Every election that has been held since Donald Trump uh, came into office, Democrats have come out in force. And I should say Democrats and independents and, the, and Republicans uh, who are aligned with us have come out. And we saw this happen in 2017 when we flipped a Senate seat in Alabama, when we won back a governorship in uh, Virginia. 2018, we had a historic, you know, 43 uh, seat gain in the House of Representatives, took back a lot of critical governorships in places like Michigan and Wisconsin that are going to be important to us as we try to protect our right to vote uh, in 2020. And then obviously in 2019, in my state of Virginia, we took back the legislature for the first time in a long, long time, you know, won a, a, a governor's race in Kentucky and Louisiana. So look, when we come out to vote, we win. There are more of us, we are more powerful. Um, but I really say to people, figure out what your election plan is. If you're gonna vote by mail, request it early. The minute you get it, send it back in. If there's a Dropbox option and you feel comfortable driving it to the Dropbox, do that. Most states or many states like mine in, in Virginia, uh, we have early voting that goes 45 days in advance. So anytime during that 45 day period, you can go and vote in person. Uh, or if you're gonna go vote in, in person, figure out what your plan is, have a plan, and then get all of your friends to tell you what their plan is as well. Because one of the things that we've always learned back when we were doing get out the vote canvassing work is that when people express their plan to somebody else, it's a higher likelihood that they'll actually follow through on that. Right, Chris. We always try to get people to become as active as they can be on the local level. The importance of local elections, you mentioned flipping uh, the Virginia House there. Was it both 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 uh, seats of the legislature there in Virginia? Yes. House and Senate, yeah, we flipped them both. Yes. How, can you talk to us why that's so important for Democrats to act locally? Yeah, I mean, I, look, I saw this in Virginia. I mean, we, you know, we have uh, had a, a state of, um, of really of mass shootings in Virginia, you know, the Virginia tech shooting, we had one down in um, Virginia Beach as well. We could never get gun legislation through the Virginia legislature, even though we had a governor because, a uh, Democratic governor, because it was Republican controlled. Um, we, we got gun legislation passed uh, under unified Democratic control. Uh, we have more protections for the right to choose. Uh, we increased the minimum wage. Uh, we made uh, voting easier in the Commonwealth of Virginia. So these are four, tangible things that we did when Democrats have control at the state and local level. And, and I always say this, I mean, this is the problem with Democrats. We, we far too often just focus on federal races um, and we don't really focus on state and local. And the truth is for most people in this country, what happens at the state and local level has a much greater impact on their day-to-day -day lives. And if you're not happy with who's in Congress, well, part of the problem sometimes is that you've got state legislatures uh, which gerrymander the congressional districts so that Democrats can never win enough seats in the House of Representatives. Uh, or you've got really kind of crummy state laws, um, particularly on things like abortion, um, that, are, that are done by Republican legislatures for the sole purpose of trying to erode Roe versus Wade and get the Supreme Court to overrule that. Um, and so 
one of the things that I'm most proud of the Democratic National Committee under Tom Perez uh, is that Tom made the commitment that Democrats from now on were going to contest races from the school board to the Senate to the White House. And it wasn't just because of the policies that were um, being enacted at the state and local level. It's also because, you know what, uh, today's school board member, today's uh, state uh, delegate uh, is tomorrow's member of Congress, tomorrow's U.S. Senator, tomorrow's president. It's a bench that we are building. It's so important to build the bench. In closing, you mentioned make a voting plan. Uh, what else, What besides that, do you think is the number one thing people should be focusing on between now and election day? Well, I mean, I, one other thing I think people ought to consider, I mean, look, there's many things. Obviously, uh, make sure everyone in your, your family is registered to vote, everyone in your immediate circles registered to vote. Um, you know, social media is gonna be critically important. And look, there's a lot of disinformation. So if you see it, uh, try to debunk it. Um, try to continue to push out positive messages about uh, not only uh, Joe Biden, but other Democratic candidates as well. Um, one thing that I think will be very tricky um, for people that have college-age students um, is where they are going to vote. And again, we just have colleges going back right now. Some of them are virtual, some are going back in person, but are looking like they're going to close again. Uh, and it's unknowable as to whether where someone's college kid is going to be on November 3rd. So if they're registered in their college town, make sure they get an absentee ballot. If they're registered in, you know, in your case in Westchester County, make sure they get their ballot. But again, there's so many people that are in so many different places right now. You really just got to like think through where everyone is going to be and how they get their ballot and how they return it in time. And fortunately, um, notwithstanding all the Republican efforts to try to oppose uh, more open voting. There are more ways to vote than ever, ever before. Just don't make the mistake of waiting to the last minute to request a mail-in ballot and expecting that somehow they're going to be able to mail you a ballot and you're going to return it with, you know, a week to spare. That's just not going to happen. Um, I am, look, if you feel like you want to vote in person and there's, er, go early if that's an option. I am not a fan of waiting till election day to vote. We don't know what's going to happen. We know if it's going to be a torrential rain, snowstorm, pandemic, whatever it is. For me, I'm going to vote in person. And if I have to wear a hazmat suit to vote in person, I'm going to vote in person. I'm going to crawl <laughs> over glass to vote in person. Uh, but most people are sometimes deterred by those things. So uh, get your ballot in as early as possible. Great. Any final thoughts? That's great. Chris, thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was fantastic. We really yeah. appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. And thank you for the important work that you all are doing. Yes. Have your hazmat suit ready. <laughs> Everybody, that's, that's, add it to, uh, to your shopping list. Thank you so much. And uh, hopefully we can revisit this after a Biden, um, a Biden victory. So I look forward to it. thank you so much, Chris. Bye, Donnie. Take care. Thank you so much, guys. Take care. Thanks for listening to Indivisible Westchester, the podcast, member of the Demcast Network. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and on our website at indivisiblewestchester.org. Take care and keep on resisting.